0: Hello and welcome to the Broadcast News Wrap, your shorthand guide to the week's TV news stories, brought to you by the Broadcast editorial team. For our final podcast of 2020, the Broadcast Journo Squad has assembled to close out our Review of the Year special episodes. Join myself, Max Goldbart, Anna Bowler, Jesse Witter, and John Elms for a whistle-stop tour of the BBC, Channel 4, the new streamers, and the production sector, as we share the 2020 moments you may have forgotten, all the while looking to next year. All the analysis and more on this week's Broadcast News Wrap. So excited to be here. We've got not one, not two, not three, but four of our News Wrap regulars. To sum up the year, and this is the last time that we'll be meeting in 2020. Welcome John Elms, Jesse Wittock, Hannah Bowler. How are we all doing? Good. Great. Yeah, wonderful, Max.
1: Teary.
0: Emotional. Amazing. This is our uh, 30th podcast. I'm going to, every five podcasts, I'm going to point to the fact that we've hit the next barrier. Mm-hmm. Well, 30th is like, yeah, I don't know what you do. Do like Not rent out a hall or something Ruby. with your friends? Is it Ruby? No. It might be Ruby. Let's say it's Ruby. But no. we'll, we'll all send each other something in the post. Something based, Ruby. Based on Ruby. 50th. I don't know what we're going to do, but it's going to be oh, crazy. We'll get a vaccine. Did we ever think we'd reach number 30? I, I very much think we did. Congratulations to, to all of us. So this week, we want to review the year part two. Hopefully all of the listeners were able to listen to part one last week, which was what I felt was a really nice summary of running a production company in utterly chaotic year. So thank you to Jimmy Molville, Julie Gardner and Nikki Gottlieb for helping on that. But this week, we're here to dissect maybe some of the finer points that got missed last week because I think we've all been quite close to this stuff over the past year or so. So why don't we start with the the lifeblood of broadcast magazine, the UK indie sector John Elms, you can kick off it's been a year once again of consolidation
1: yeah
2: well I mean we talk about the lifeblood of the UK sector and every year we you know I think I think Pat do some a census of who's turned up, which new Indies have emerged, which have fallen by the wayside and which have, in terms of closed fully, and which have been consolidated. And while we know we broadcasted, report a few companies that sadly have, you know, fallen foul of coronavirus or or just the straightened times that we find ourselves in, the main story has been consolidation because a way to safeguard one's uh, future is to have in the you know the, the 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 suppliers that can give the programming that that broadcasters want, and I mean the clear the biggest one that we saw obviously this year was Banner J taking over NML Shine. I mean we knew that was coming, but there ha- there were still lots of legal hoops to jump through, and um, that really kind of I think is going to kick in a, 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 a bumper set again of consolidation next year uh, because. You know, this that super indie is now the biggest in the world. I mean, they have production entities across the globe. They have, um, you know, expertise in the unscripted area. They have expertise in the scripted area. And we get the impression, I mean, I mean, Jesse and I have, have done a bit of kind of reporting on this that we, we don't think that Banerjee's appetite for um, consolidation is over either. They are one of the companies that are sniffing around. Uh, Nent Studios UK, which is uh, obviously just got the the Channel Five commission for the holiday in the last couple of days, and also has the Channel Four commission. Uh, well, Channel Four, sorry, acquisition a ViPay commission. and Channel Four bought it, so their studio that and and they have an inbuilt distribution arm. So they're a, they're a, they're quite an attractive proposition as a kind of holistic production unit. And we we understand we reported that Banijay are one of the the in these that are sniffing around along with Fremantle and all three, and all three as well, you know, they were one of the companies that were sniffing around Red Arrow Studios, Um, but they've they've, they've kicked the tires of a lot of companies, Red Arrow particularly. And I just think this chain of um, consolidation is gonna keep going. People, any indie that shows real worth, be it through commissions, through really good relationship with talent or, or relationships with SVODs or broadcasters, are going to be hot property uh, as as companies try and surefire their their future in a in a really hotly competitive market
1: yeah i think you're right john it definitely looks like those assets that are left on the market and there aren't that many of them I think companies like red arrow like nent studios uk they're definitely going to be sought after and it's not necessarily just what, what some people call the trade buyers you know the, the all threes and the freemantles and the, the Jays, but We've heard several times this year from sources within the private equity community that they're starting to look more seriously at the indie sector. We saw some of that investment come in through the deal that uh, Lloyd's or LDC did to invest in Plimsoll, And I think um, certainly from all of the noises that I'm hearing are those sorts of buyers are really sort of starting to understand the underlying value in owning content and, and what you can do when you own content. I think the fact that streamers are really, you know, exploiting their their um, in-house production or the, the, the assets that they own is really alerting people sort of outside of the traditional sphere as to how valuable this stuff can be. It's not like you're not buying a show. If you're buying the underlying IP, you can then do any number of things with it. Uh, And we'll talk a bit later about, you know, what's going on with the S-Fods, but, you know, just in the last few weeks, we've seen what Disney uh, are doing with their streaming service. So you can can really see where the value lies in this stuff, if you can find the right asset. And obviously UK indies have a reputation for creating great content and and content that can be sweated. So I reckon we'll we'll definitely see deals like that next year.
2: Yeah, I mean, you absolutely hit nail on the head, Jesse, as well with um, private equity. Obviously, private equity investing companies to then sell them on at a later stage. I think a number of companies, what production companies that I've spoken to, have been toying with the idea of going into being sold to private equity. They will do that as a kind of first sale, and the investors will like really give them the the weight that they need and build them up. And then those investors will then go, well, "Hang on, we can now potentially shift this on to an industry player for." an elevated price and as you mentioned production companies for streamers in-house production we haven't fully seen the kind of in-house production arm of netflix say you know this is netflix studios and they've got x who's their head of um you know current programming. or they obviously do have these execs but like as a studio business and you know why, why try and build that when you can buy that if, 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 if you get the right entity? And I think that
0: will possibly, you know, in the next five years or so could be uh, common. So big changes to, to come in, in, in the consolidation world, it seems. By this time next year, do we think that any other uh, similar Banerjee Endemol style deals will have been done? Uh, or is it more... It feels a bit like 2021 will be more of a year where the the consolidation that has already taken place kind of finds its feet a little bit and, and, uh, and yeah, it sort of gets into the market.
1: I would say, Max, that it feels like the assets that are available, the production companies that are there to be bought, probably more of the kind of, I don't know, kind of indie scale, I guess, like the kind of not rather than super indie scale. I mean, if Red Arrow returns to the market whether it's actually off or not at the moment is, is unclear that's probably one of the bigger groups but you're talking that's because it's got u.s assets and european assets to go with the handful of british uh, indies that red arrow owns but there probably isn't that many production companies out there that of that sort of scale that are available i mean um, You'd probably say Silverback was what was one of the largest kind of like emerging indies, and that's been snapped up by all three. And I can't imagine there will be too many others out there. Plimsoll seems like it's becoming a sort of consolidator itself. I suppose you could potentially look at companies like Argonon being targets for bigger companies. Nothing's materialised on those uh, those areas, but there are definitely stories that and, and narratives that we'll be following to see if there are any developments on um, as we move into twenty twenty one.
0: And more generally, like, uh, obviously, we've we've focused on consolidation for time being, but it's been a year, and we touched on this a bit last week, c- clearly, but it's been a year where production companies have had to face up to things that they would never have had to face up to before. There's been a hell of a lot of, like, just, like, constant adaptation to, to what's going on, like, outside, really. So where where the something like the live events industry or the, or the theatre industry has had to almost shut down, like... For me, uh, it it feels like the kind of defining thing this year about TV's production community has been constantly having to adapt and work out how they can film, really, like in various guises. Um, I think the, the £500 million insurance scheme, which is the largest of its type in the world, has been really, really important over the last like quarter or so. Um, but then there's been the, the relationship with the freelance community and these really, really big questions about TV production. How, how do people think that, that in general the, the production community has kind of got through the pandemic?
3: I feel like there's been a greater collaboration between competing indies. And I think that's been something that definitely feels very positive. I've definitely had conversations where people that are often competing for different pitches have opened their doors to each other. Their virtual doors. And have been joining calls and making sure everyone's up to date and sharing best practice and tips. And I think that's something that I've noticed has felt very positive story from the year.
1: Yeah, definitely. the 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 amount of in of indies who have been able to survive because of the input of other indies is probably can't be underestimated.
0: Uh, it's clearly been a roller coaster of a year, particularly for for TV's freelance community. But there it feels like there is a, a sense of at least a part sense of, of hope coming out of of 2020 that more freelancers are both able to get back into work. Obviously, TV production has, has uh, almost completely resumed. Uh, but also there's been so much around working conditions, mental health issues and and bullying and, and issues such as this that one feels may not have come up had coronavirus not happened for whatever reason this this stuff feels like it's uh, been accelerated. Hannah, I know you, you've you've done a fair amount of work around this. Are, are we almost, due to the coronavirus pandemic, are we almost in a better position now than we were a year ago?
3: Yeah, I think uh, it's probably one of those ones, again, like a lot of these issues that has been bubbling under the surface for a long time, and then all of a sudden it really shines a light. And I think the freelancer, what has happened to freelancers in this year is, has been... I mean, one of the saddest stories, I think, for the industry during the pandemic. And I think that that has been given its due spotlight um, and really pushed pushed it to the forefront. And I hope I feel it feels like there's a lot of work to be done, a lot of work to be done. But it feels like it's on the agenda and it maybe is, is being pushed in the right direction. I think there's been some incredible um, incredible work being done. The TV Coalition for Change was, um, was a great start, and I know that um, having a pan industry pan industry approach is going to be the right way. Um, so it's really nice to see all the different uh, broadcasters and industry bodies kind of working together on this in that way. So I think that's a really positive step. But there's been a lot of other things that you didn't know were quite as connected which has been, I think, quite interesting, especially the stuff around bullying and harassment for freelancers, say, that uh, I know I've been covering a lot. And it's kind of really shone that idea of the fact that there's no HR system, or there's no body that can bring everyone under a head. So it's not just the the lack of instability in work, or the, the financial side, it's the fact that there's nobody representing the freelancers. And I think that's something that really does feel I get the sense that that could be really changed moving forward in twenty twenty one. I don't know.
2: We know that there's a lot of lip service in TV, but if you have now got bodies that can then point to the fact that they've said they've said this on record. And if they don't improve, we know because we report about it, if they don't improve the situation, it's going to be reported and that's going to lead to much more negative press. So the fact it's been put on the agenda will mean it will stay on the agenda because I mean the word that you've Written, done the work that Max has done over the, l- the past nine months um, has kept it publicly you know written about as well as being reported within the actual people who are experiencing these things so hopefully the fact that it's now on record and we can point to things that people have said this year if they're failing next year then they won't be able to wriggle out of it you know if they if they have been failing to do better.
3: I think to absolutely right and I feel like it's one of these things that we hope can keep the momentum up. And when COVID and production kind of gets back into into the flow and freelancers are hired again and it, it kind of goes back to normal, that these bigger questions aren't just dropped because production has resumed and we're all back and happy and back to normal. It, it feels like the next push is keeping the bigger debates that came out of it alive, even when Kind of, we we go back to normality. Not ever sure what that is, but <laughs> we all say it anyway.
0: That's definitely that's definitely the crux of it. Like, it's very easy. I think part of the reason that this stuff got accelerated is, is because over the summer, so much of TV's freelance community wasn't in work, and people, uh, the kind of leaders of different bodies or the people who represent these groups of freelancers, had sort of the time and the, the energy and, and the wherewithal to really harness what they thought would be future changes. So whether that, like you said, that momentum continues when life is relatively normal in, in 12 months time is like a really key question. I think I think at the moment, like the signs are good. And also, I think in general, the shape of the way freelancers interact with tv companies and work on different shows is going to change as well so like i quoted a lot from a survey that came out around six months ago that said that ten percent of tv's freelance community had already had already either left the industry or were were actively seeking an exit i think the reality is there will be less of a freelance pool in the future potentially and hopefully the exchange is that that group of people will be treated better because as you identified hannah so much of this has been around the fact that freelancers just have, have so little working rights when they're hopping from production to production. And even going further than that, employees of TV production companies similarly work in companies without, without human resources systems or, or in, a, in a position where you can work masses of overtime w- without really complaining. So all, all of this stuff kind of, um, has kind of been corralled together. Uh, And it's definitely collaboration again comes into it. Sort of like what we were talking about earlier with with indies. Um, So where will we be in a year's year's time? It's quite difficult to tell, but there's been a lot of activity. And
1: there's there's a lot of these sort of big questions being asked at the moment, and obviously the. The other um, side to this, which we've covered in you know ex- a lot of detail on this podcast and on, on broadcast, is the the diversity debate, which sort of really kicked up again after the um, the BLM protests began over the summer. Obviously, David Oleshoge's, um McTaggart really kind of called shone a spotlight on where people are going wrong within promoting. People from different backgrounds up the further up the ladder and just changing the structure but it all sort of broadly whilst whilst the freelancers debate is is, uh, um, a set of questions on one side and the sort of diversity questions are a set of questions slightly separate they're sort of asking the same things aren't they because what we're effectively talking about here is the structure and the working practices Mm -hmm. within television and the way that things can improve practically And like John says, who's holding those people to account if those things don't happen?
0: You want 21 to be a a more targeted year almost where you start taking each of these things and and addressing them with less questions and more action. But there certainly, it feels like there have been many steps taken. But of course, we could not ignore the UK's public service broadcasting sector and beyond. Uh, so the year ends with a, with Ofcom's future PSB report, uh, which will uh, subsequently be updated about halfway through next year. A lot of really interesting suggestions made by Ofcom, which could pave the way for a quite different public service broadcasting sector in a few years, in part maybe bringing in some of the other players. Uh, that aren't technically PSBs but create public service content but at the same time the coronavirus pandemic has certainly had its impact especially on the commercial broadcasters. Alex Mann, Channel 4 Chief Executive sits on the front of this month's broadcast magazine as we as we see the year out. Hannah what kind of year has it been for Channel 4?
3: What kind of year? Wow big big
0: on that one. We, We tackle the big questions broadcast review of the year parts three four five. <laughs> yeah split this one up
3: it's been a monumental year <laughs> I mean they went from losing 50% of ad revenue that was the time to ending the year I mean in a in a much better shape than I think anyone themselves would admit um could have for, foreseen I suppose, I guess maybe it was for uh, across the board, I don't think anyone thought the ad market would recover as quickly as it did. So I mean, props props, uh, for that being the scenario. I think they said, so from losing half their ad revenue back at the beginning of the lockdown, um, they reported a 12% year-on-year growth for November. They're saying that they've kind of weathered the storm, I guess. So that's good news for the indies, to be honest, because normally one really wants poor Channel 4. Um, and hopefully there can be some injection of some higher tariffs into 2021, which I think will be really, really welcomed.
1: Of course, the the other issue with Channel 4, though, that is starting to sort of come back onto the table is, is privatisation. It's like it, it always almost feels like we, we're never not talking about Channel 4 potentially being privatised, but um, it is does feel like at the moment this is something with like you mentioned max the psb reviews the various reviews that are sort of uh, being undertaken at the moment and the, the the psb panel that's been set up with various industry sort of figures and and people from outside of the industry talking about the future of public service broadcasting it does feel like you know, this is probably quite a threatening time for Channel 4 in some ways, in, in the sense of, you know, those people who really don't want it privatised. And I would imagine most of the indie sector would probably be within that because currently it guarantees them a stream of revenue, right? It does feel like this could be a time where privatisation really does.
3: I as well get the feeling not, not necessarily basically on tariffs, but just, I mean, there's just not slots, really. Like there's not that much you can really pitch into next year how, how much business is even available um, for next year and even then going into 2022. But
1: you know you, you do bring up a, an interesting point there Hannah because that the, I suppose the flip side to that or the counter argument to that is the broadcasters from Channel 4 to ITV and, and most prominently the BBC are all making these very bold pronounced steps about becoming digital first commissioners. So in theory the idea of a slot and real estate and, you know, pitching for 8pm on a Tuesday might not be as sort of drastically disastrous for uh, an indie if that's not available than it might be in the future if, you, if you're if you actually just pitching to a commissioner saying, here's some, you know, here's a show that you'll be able to play several times. The
2: ITV announcement, which was quite seismic at the time, you know, it was really, really big deal um, uh, to have a complete restructure to have an on-demand unit. That sits next to um, its its broadcasting uh, unit, broadcasting commission, is the precursor precursor to the, the the really big announcement that happened last week. I think it was last week, week before at the, at the BBC, which I which I know Max, you you were all over uh, in terms of in terms of in, uh, importance. So I, I do think that the broadcasters are they're, re- they're in the latter stage. I mean, COVID has precipitated this a lot, obviously because you know, just the ad market dropped out and, and they've kind of been forced to recalibrate and obviously on-demand viewing went up. There's It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that if on-demand viewing is going up, it makes sense to invest in commissioning for your VOD services and your on-demand and your OTT services. And they've all been doing it, haven't they?
1: Uh, Max, I wonder if you can give us a, a read on what's going on at the BBC, because it feels like the BBC's strategy is kind of more pronounced than even... ITVs and and Channel 4s. I think that the, the fact that they're doing away with the channel controllers and they're, everything's going to go through genre commissioners is super interesting for a, a organisation which has basically been built on having BBC One, BBC Two. Mm-hmm. What's your sense of actually what's going to happen?
0: Yeah, interesting, interesting year to come. the the new um, The new system doesn't actually come into place till April, so they have another few months to kind of set the groundwork. But it but it is quite drastic. Uh, just for people not familiar, it's it's the the cutting of the channel controller roles, the increased importance of genre heads who will now no longer have to feed into what's called the the what was called the two tick system. Uh, which is every show having to get a tick from both channel and genre, which I don't think I've ever heard spoken about in positive terms. It's just, it, it, is, it is absolutely like defines the bureaucracy that sits within BBC commissioning. So at the moment, like there is quite a lot of positivity from the production sector around the fact that they no longer have to go through the the, the dreaded two tick. Um, so the genre heads have a lot more power. And iPlayer in general is like being again built towards as as the front window for BBC content. What changes in practice like slightly remains to be seen, but it's been really interesting to see the BBC like lead the way on this. I suppose partly due to having a license fee funding model, the BBC just hasn't taken the hit this year from coronavirus that the the ad funded guys have or frankly any private business has. Um, So they've been able, they were able to kind of push on with this structure there's an element of, I, I, my read on it is there's an element of that they could be running before they've walked. And I think they might find that they over sort of ignore ignore that linear schedule and start like solely commissioning for iPlayer too quickly at your peril maybe is, is what I think might happen. So there are still a hell of a lot of people who do tune in every night to BBC One and BBC Two. And they're going to start seeing probably more and more repeats and shows in slightly different places and the importance of the the what's newly dubbed channel editor schedulers has has kind of slipped down a little bit that would be my read the the iplayer first approach means that shows that might fit into a particular slot and especially a slot that may skew towards like the older viewer now just aren't being given the same importance and, like, you know, there are many like good things about this plan, but there are going to be less shows commissioned. They're going to be commissioned with an iPlayer lens. And then once they've been paid for, then the, the channel editors are going to be able to look at those shows and say, okay, like, can I have this one for this time? Which is the reverse of what used to happen, which is it was very much like, I want to slot something into my Tuesday at eight o'clock and it's going to be factual and it's got to do, got to play this kind of role. So it's kind of about the content that they choose to go for.
2: Mission and all the screen show for iPlayer, are they? Because everyone's young, supposedly.
0: So, yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, old, uh, older people are clearly using BVOD players, right? And they're certainly... There's all, all the talk over the last few months is that older people are certainly using SVOD players. Um, so it's, it's difficult. It's kind of like the broadcasters have less money to spend they know that they need to transition and keep fighting off the threat from the SVODs who are tapping into older and older people. But at the same time, they have these channels to run. Like I, I don't, I don't really envy them at all. Like it's a really delicate balancing act, and that applies across the board.
1: The the interesting thing, like sort of the context around all of this, is is the SVODs, right? It's the fact that this is all a, a response to the the fact that Disney Plus launched you know, for whatever it was, 12 months ago. And it's now, you know, its subscriber base is, is touching towards the numbers that Netflix has already. And they're predicting that they're going to have, you know, 350 million subscribers in the sort of Disney world, including ESPN and uh, Hulu and, and Star, which is the new sort of international version of Hulu, which is launching. And what you're seeing there is the big media companies in America Primarily, sort of taking a different approach to what the public service broadcasters are doing here, which is basically saying we're betting the house on the fact that streaming is going to be the way that everyone consumes in, say, a decade or 15 years' time. And that they're saying to those people who outwardly reject streaming, ultimately, you're going to be forced to use it one way or the other, whether that's through the, the delivery systems. Or whether that's um just people having to learn i don't know there might be a company might be a point where the kind of the actual experience of watching television becomes a bit you know a bit more frustrating for some people as they get to grips with what you know how to use streaming services and, and the systems that go with that and you know being uh, having a connected home and all of those kind of wider debates but those those companies are basically saying this is the future and that's where we're putting our money i mean the in america you've seen a kind of really paired back um couple of years now really um in terms of the pilot season which is virtually you know non-existent it is happening people are piloting shows there but in the way that you, you know you used to have 20 pilots per major broadcaster per year it's not really like that now and people are mainly commissioning for their streaming services. Now, Disney Plus is the most interesting one because just the way that that's hit the ground running so hard is is incredible. So we've just seen Disney launch or, or announce that that they're, they're going to be launching 100 shows a year based on their brand. So based on National Geographic, Lucasfilm, Star Wars, Pixar, the Marvel Universe. And they are absolutely convinced that that is what will drive people to their company, right? And you've seen HBO Max doing very similar things and we're seeing uh, Peacock in the Comcast world equally. All of these services are clearly saying that, you know, us owning our own IP is the way that our companies are going to run in 10 years time. The PSBs obviously are in a slightly different situation because of the ecosystem here compared to the American uh, media system and sort of global media system, I guess. Um, But they are effectively they're being ask the same questions aren't they they're they're being asked how are you who are your future um, customers who are your viewers in 10 years time and how are you going to reach those people and you know it's, it's difficult for like you say Max the fact that the linear channels in this country are so strong you know compared to uh, linear channels in other countries, they're probably stronger than almost anywhere. To kind of keep that going whilst also moving towards this kind of world that Disney and, the, and the HBO or Warner Media are trying to play in, it's a super hard thing to do to juggle all of all of that. And uh, whilst you, you couldn't say that any of the PSBs have really got it right yet, the fact that they're all sort of taking their own bold steps forward into digital first strategies is a, is a really smart thing, I think, and I, and I think they should be praised for that
3: with what Channel 4 are doing at the moment, I'm watching shows like I've started watching One Tree Hill and I'm like, that's something I would go to Amazon or to Netflix for. It's not something I'd think I'm going to go to 4OD and start watching old archived um, US dramas. And I think that's a really clever shift where no longer is it like just purely for catching up on first dates. It's now like a place that you will think to go off to find a new show or a, and I, th- I think that might is a clever kind of uh, thing that they've cottoned on to
0: acquisitions could play a huge role because if you're looking if you want to for less money populate your b-vod player that you're really hoping is going to keep on reeling in the viewers but you don't quite have the money to spend on shows that that netflix has say then i think it's going to become more and more important i think you're exactly right the bbc has like I think one of the most kind of underrated but intelligent things that's done over the past sort of year and a half, two years is strike that deal with FX, which has just bought loads of really good shows onto iPlayer. They're given little linear windows and nobody really watches them, but they're really highly rated. People are starting to associate, even if they're not BBC originals, people are associating BBC with these kind of shows, Atlanta, Pose, really like good programs. And they don't cost too much either because they're not originals. So I think that's certainly something to look out for.
2: We talk about um, companies being able to leverage the various assets that they have. BBC Studios has got to be used quite dramatically for BBC in the future to really, really strengthen its position, even if it's even if it's just its core of pouring more money back into BBC, which we know that BBC Studios does per year through licensing. You know, I think they've obviously just announced that new um, spod service in, in the US. That's a big deal. That's a really interesting move for, and that's part of, that's that's on the BBC Studio side. That's a really interesting part of it. Obviously, BritBox in North America—they've got participation in that, and obviously, all the rights are there. All this amazing programming in BBC Studios—if they want to, they—I don't think the BBC will not stop licensing, but you know, maybe bring bring license it to their own platforms. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe maybe they would, but they've got so much good content. You can imagine that you'd want to use it for yourself.
1: But this goes to the core of like what the future of uh, broadcasting media companies will look like, right? It's about our companies going to be able to acquire rights. So at the moment, like uh, like Hannah was saying, Four OD is doing a really good job of snapping up really smart, you know, shows which are available on the market. It um, took Rick and Morty off Netflix, which was a really interesting move. That must have cost them quite a lot of money as well to do that. But it's obviously. To drive those sixteen to thirty fours in, but the question is how long that tap stays on for. Because we know that you know Warner Media is is going forgo- to forgo you know billions of dollars by not licensing shows and keeping that stuff for HBO Max, and we know that Disney uh, Disney is doing the same with Disney Plus, perhaps not to the same extent. We think uh, from having uh, John and I have done quite a lot of work on this year. We think that Warner Media is the ones who have sort of gone the deepest on this. But equally, all of these companies, Viacom, CBS, um, and all the major media companies who are launching their own services, Comcast, they're doing the same thing. And yeah, the question is for the likes of the BBC and ITV and, and and even Channel Four. It's like, how do you how do you compete with that in ten years' time? Do you do the same, or do you take your own path and boldly strike out into a different place and hope that your strategy is actually going to fit within the ecosystem that emerges there's a super interesting time for uh, for media because we're just at that that on that kind of crossroads of, of things could go anywhere really the americans are obviously taking their their punt they seem to have all done that and they, they sort of they and we sort of know their direction of travel we're just starting to learn the direction of travel over here in the uk and um yeah i think this next year is going to be a, a really interesting one in terms of the sort of wider questions and the bigger questions that we ask around public service broadcasting
0: a fine place to wrap up, Jesse Whittock. Uh And what what a year it's been. Been absolutely great, guys. Merry Christmas. Uh, it's sad merry that Christmas. we can't all be sitting around the yeah, table. Merry Christmas, Max. But who knows? Yeah, Merry merry Christmas to all. John Elms is shaking his head slightly. Not, not yeah, sure what's going on there, but fair. Merry Christmas to you. To to
2: raise a glass with you guys. You know, that's what we'd be doing. We'd be heading out somewhere to raise a few... Few glasses, few glasses,
1: many. I'll, I'll, glasses. Tell you, I'll tell you one thing: it's been the um, probably the healthiest Christmas I've ever had. Um, so that's so you know you've got to look at the positives yeah. for these yeah. things. I've, I've you know I've ba- I barely embarrassed myself. Um, An industry do, in fact, I haven't because I haven't been any industry do. So um, so that's a positive, I guess. And that's that's what I'll take away from 2021.
0: John Elms, Hannah, yeah. Jesse Whittick, thank you so much for joining me.
3: Cheers, Max. Thanks, Thanks,
0: Max. Thanks, Max. Thank you for listening to the Broadcast News Wrap. You've been listening to our Review of the Year Part 2 with senior reporter Max Goldbart, reporter Hannah Bowler, Insight editor Jesse Whittock and international editor John Elms. This podcast was edited by Hannah Bowler. You can check out past episodes of The Pod on Spotify and iTunes or on the website via www.broadcastnow.co.uk